Welcome to Next Level Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Perry. For 25 years, I've helped professionals, first responders, celebrities, Olympians, teachers, moms, dads, and people just like you achieve their results better and faster than they thought possible. This is where measurable modern science meets the quantum. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive right in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Next Level Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Perry. I'm over the moon excited about my guest today. Uh, he has written a, a number of books. I just got into my hands a couple of weeks ago when I found out we had this interview set up, An End to Upside Down Thinking. Uh, Mark is the author of that book, which won the Ippy Award for the best-selling science book of the year. He's the author of uh, The End of Upside Down Living, An End to Upside Down Liberty, An End to Upside Down Contact, An End to Upside Down Reset, and he's the host of the podcast, Where Is My Mind? I love how challenging this book is to our concept of consciousness. I've been way into consciousness for decades. And um, honestly, this is the best book I have ever read on this subject. It is phenomenal. Um, he also serves on the board of Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell's Institute of Noetic Sciences. Been very much a fan of them throughout the years uh, and the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. Uh, previously, uh, Mark was partner at Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley and worked as an investment banking analyst. This is a huge uh, variety of background here with USB in New York. Um, he has been named one of IAM's Strategy 300. This is a world's leading uh, intellectual property strategist group. Um, Mark graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University, where he wrote an award-winning thesis on Daniel Kahneman's Nobel Prize winning prospect theory, which is how people take chances under stress. Very fascinating subject. Um, Mark was also the captain of Princeton's Division I tennis team. Uh, really a varied career, Mark. Did I get all that right? Um, if I said anything incorrectly, um, you just have such a... I mean, it's so obvious from reading your bio that... Um, you know, you you wanted to switch into astrophysics with you when you were in your Princeton, uh, but your tennis career, which was remarkable, um, didn't allow that time wise. Uh, so you went into psychology and took on a, a behemoth in that area as well and did so incredibly successfully. Then you uh, applied your talents to the investment banking area. Um, and of course, as luck and fate would have it, you got in right before 08 when everything was crashing around you. It seems that you've always had this amazing passion for understanding uh, humanity and consciousness. And, you know, at one point you were looking out to study the stars and then you went to look inwards at what uh, what consciousness brings to the table. And um, I'm so happy to have you here. Um, I'm just going to turn it over to you. Um, tell us about how you got started, wh why this passion um obviously got ignited when you were in college and um, has carried you through to this day. Um, it's, it's obviously a labor of love and tell us how it's been. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on the show. I, even though I had an interest back in college in astrophysics, because I had taken some uh, low level courses just about the nature of reality, I, I think the interest was there, but I never I never pursued the big picture questions because I was so busy with everything else. And I was concerned about achieving the next thing that was in front of me. And I was stressed about whatever that was. So I, ha I think I had questions about existence in the back of my mind, but I didn't, I didn't pursue the avenues that I've now pursued with my books. They were kind of on the sidelines and thinking back to undergrad, it's interesting. I wonder what would have happened if I stuck, if, if I went into astrophysics, because that field is tends to be materialistic. It's looking at the nature of this world through a physical lens. And where I have now approached things is looking at consciousness as the basis of reality and that the material world is actually not the most fundamental thing. So I'm not sure what would have happened. Uh, but what what's driving all of my work and what probably even drove me when I was an undergrad and didn't realize it is that I wanted to understand what we're doing here. I mean, it's a pretty fundamental question because we go about our lives almost like robots or zombies in a way where we're just following the next thing and not even asking why we're doing it. And if we do ask the question, I'm, I'm talking about myself as well, there's a, 
it, it, often we're not asking the fundamental question of what it, what is a human being? Why does this universe exist in the first place? And I have a hard time thinking about what to do in life now without having answers or at least provisional answers to those questions, because everything that we prioritize ultimately has to come down to a, a metaphysical picture of reality. So I hope that gives you a picture of, of what I, the reason that I write and speak about these topics, because I have a curiosity within myself to understand this stuff. And I don't think I'm close to understanding it. Um, and the deeper I go, the more questions come up. So Tony Robbins says, if you want better answers, you've got to ask better questions. And I love that this book is really turning the material world uh, upside down mm -hmm. uh, by asking better questions. So you mentioned in your book uh, that Science Magazine has a question uh, that you basically said, wait a minute, this is the wrong question. Could you mention what that is and how your book um, comes from a, a totally different angle? Sure. So Science Magazine listed its top 25 questions remaining in all of science. And this for it was for its 125th anniversary edition, which was in the mid 2000s. And the, the number one question was, uh, what is the universe made out of? And the number two question is, um, what is the biological basis of consciousness? And I really approach both of those questions in my book, but I focus mainly on the second one explicitly. What is the biological basis of consciousness? The question itself, has a presumption built into it, which is that there is a biological basis of consciousness and we just need to figure out what that is. And what it, what does that mean more generally, the biological basis of consciousness? The question's referring to the body and the brain. So the brain is something in our body that we know is related to the way that we experience the world. And we know that through the field of neuroscience where let's say someone gets in a a car accident and, and has brain damage, and then the person has a corresponding memory loss, we can often point to parts of the brain that were damaged and then say, look, your consciousness changed in a very uh, related manner. And so people typically say, it must be the case that the brain is producing our consciousness because there are these close correlations. They're actually known as neural correlates of consciousness. And the field of neuroscience looks at this. They want to know which parts of the brain correspond to what part of our conscious experience. But why is there a question then? Uh, why, why is Science Magazine asking the question, what's the biological basis of consciousness? Because it's not known how something physical like a brain could create something non-physical like our consciousness. So I could touch my body, I could touch the physical world, this chair, for example, but I can't touch my consciousness. And this is really, it's known as the hard problem of consciousness even, has a, a name in, in philosophy. Because we mainstream academia doesn't understand how something non-physical could emerge out of something physical. And this is such a big question because if we didn't have a consciousness of the capacity for experience, the subjective inner awareness, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't even be able to have this conversation or ask questions about why we're here. So we've got to understand consciousness first before we can even think about the rest of the world. And it's, it's almost like modern societies looking at the physical world, but not looking at the part of us that is even experiencing it and trying, and trying to figure out how that works. So that's what this book and End Upside Down Thinking is looking at is, is the nature of consciousness. Does it come from the brain and the body? I would argue it actually doesn't even come from the brain and the body. And then what are the implications of that for the world that we live in? And what's so great about your book is, I mean, I, when I was back at UCLA years ago, uh, I was I read this book in my class called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which you're probably familiar with by Thomas Kuhn. And basically, you know, and science has a very short memory, as you say in your book, we are very complacent that what we think is reality is reality. And I work in the world of subconscious and going in and making adjustments there and helping people have better, freer lives. And the conscious mind is pro processing 40 bits of, of information per second and the subconscious mind is processing 40 million bits a second. So for us to think that our conscious mind is really perceiving much of anything that is real um, and then much less get indignant about it when somebody you know has a conversation about something that doesn't agree with you, um, you very well put this in your book that science has a very short memory and um, truly, uh, you know, it's, it was stated by, uh, who was it that said any, any, um, huge 
change, uh, all great truths begin as blasphemies. Uh, you know, George Bernard Shaw said that. What I so, so, so love about your book and what I think is so revolutionary about it is that you collect all these areas that really prove that um, the brain consciousness is not local to the brain. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I've heard of stories and I've read studies, and but your book captures all of it in so many areas so succinctly and so scientifically. That's what's so exciting to me. Because, I mean, really decades ago, I started coming across uh, quantum physics and its implications, um, uh, its implications to who and what we are, um, our experience of life. And your book does such a phenomenal job of looking at all these different areas like precognition and and telekinesis and telepathy um, and the studies that were done at the Monroe Institute where, you know, the CIA was doing remote viewing and what those results are. And then you looked at the statistical po uh, possibility that this could be anything other than what it is. And when you look at, you know, uh, probabilities and, and statistics that indicate this is, you know, one in 30 million, one in a billion, one in multiple billions. I mean, it really gets to be like, oh my gosh, we really are so ripe for a change in how we perceive reality. And, and, you know, your book is, is so pivotal. I mean, I, I can't imagine somebody reading this. I mean, you talk about Carl Sagan, you know, he didn't believe any of this stuff. And, and, and then finally some scientist who you quote in your book, and I'm forgetting the name, but said to him, look, have you read any of my research? And Sagan said, no, because I mean, a lot of these guys say, well, why should I read the research? There's why should I, you know, it's like, I know my arm is my arm. I don't need to go read a study about it. So, you know, it's like, it can't exist. Therefore it doesn't. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But your book blows the lid out of it. And if you if you have half um, uh, an open mind reading this book, I, I don't see how anybody can put this book down and think that consciousness is still located in the brain. Hmm. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I, I do think there are many psychological hurdles that prevent people from accepting what you just described. Um, there are cognitive biases, like confirmation biases, where people will always find something that confirms their belief system. And they'll like hang on to that one thing rather than uh, something that would argue for a paradigm shift. And the way that I approached this book was, um, I, I didn't start off my, in my research looking at the brain and consciousness specifically. I came across a number of anomalies. So these were phenomena that didn't make sense relative to the worldview that I had at the time, which was I thought life was random and meaningless and that when you die, there is no consciousness. That's what I thought because that was the mainstream scientific perspective. And then I came across evidence for things that challenged that. And while the pieces of evidence might seem like they're disconnected, I, I realized they were all they were all connected to the idea that of brain consciousness, whether it's children and past life memories, near-death experiences, US government studies on psychic spying. These things are all sort of paranormal sounding, and I don't even like that term because it presumes that we know what normal is, and I think we need to change normal. But uh, and in any case, they th these are areas that are, are somewhat distinct in terms of the research, and I wanted to bring them all together. And my hope was that uh, or that a reader would, would read the book um, and not to put it down in, in immediately, which I know some people do because the the ideas are challenging, and they say I don't want to read this. So I've heard that feedback before. But those who actually do take the time to read everything that they wouldn't be able to dismiss every single example. Maybe some examples would be, would be more compelling to them than others. But my hope was that if even one anomaly were true, then, then they'd have to reconsider reality. And I want to give a historical precedent for this. I, heard, I first heard about this from Dr. Dean Radin, who's the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He referenced Lord Kelvin, who in, in the year 1900 was one of the leading officials in science. And at that point, he basically said that the state of science or physics was such that most things had been figured out and there were these two clouds that remained, two anomalies or, or just things they hadn't quite figured out. And it turns out that those two clouds turned into what we now know as relativity theory and quantum mechanics. So these, these small anomalies that don't quite fit the picture, sometimes they have massive implications. And I think that's the case with consciousness because sometimes the studies are not 
they don't have a huge effect size, meaning let's say pure chance is 25%. The studies will show that people might be psychic 32% of the time, not 100% of the time. But when you run the study statistically over and over again, that's 32 versus 25% quote unquote psychic ability, deviation from chance is like more than a billion to one against chance, six sigma results. And we see that over and over again, and there are peer reviewed studies on this. So the point is that it can be a small anomaly, a statistically significant but small effect, and it has to be accommodated in, in some kind of a scientific worldview, whereas the current scientific paradigm can't accommodate these anomalies. I love that. Um, and yes, that keeps going back to the structure of scientific revolutions. It's those outliers out there. It's like, well, if this is such a great theory and it encapsulates everything that's really happening, you know, why are there all these outliers? And again, your book does a phenomenal job of reporting on this in a really scientific way. I mean, you 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 said in your book that you wanted this to come from somebody who wasn't a scientist and I think not a psychologist. Was that the two areas? Uh, science or, or philosopher. Like, philosophy. Okay. Yeah. But you were bringing a fresh perspective to it because you didn't want to, you wanted to speak the average person's language, which I think you do a phenomenal job with. And yes, you're probably going to run into those people that they're just not ready to have a paradigm shift because this is a huge paradigm shift. But I'm so grateful that it's happening. Um, you know, my watchers, uh, anybody that's worked with me, um, they know I'm a huge Joe Dispenza fan. And I think he's pushing the envelope of this quite nicely as well. And he is letting science speak for itself. You know, he's not coming in and saying, I have this amazing theory. I mean, yes, he does have an amazing theory, but he is just collecting the blood, the saliva, the brain waves, and showing what's happening um, in a really statistically significant way. And now he's got a team of scientists there, you know, um, None of none of them were meditators before they started this. They're all meditators now. Mm. Um, but it's really, really exciting when you start to see the convergence of, of science and these um, phenomenal paradigm shifts. So I, I would like to take a minute because um, I was blown away by all the examples that you, you have in your book. Um, some of them I was aware of, but many, many of them I was not aware of. For example, there was a study uh, with a, a random generator computer um, and baby chicks that were hatched. Um, I think they did it multiple times. One was even with a single chick um, and to make it completely as blinded as possible. You know, sometimes the robot knew there was a chick in the other uh, thing compartment and sometimes the robot didn't know there was a chick in the other thing. Um, and, and when there was a baby chick that was imprinted on the robot, this robot that would normally wander around in a random thing because that's what's programmed to do. It's a random generator. It, well, but if there's a baby chick that's imprinted on that little chick thinks, oh, that's mommy. I want mommy next to me. That little bit of consciousness was enough to throw off the randomness and cause that random generator to be closer to that wall. And then another study was done with rabbits and the rabbits were scared of the robot at first. Um, and the, the robot did the converse which was it would it would stay further away from the rabbits. So again, you talk about you know even if it's a minimally statistically different outcome, you know that's huge. And if you if you stretch that to uh, the human brain compared to a little chick or rabbits, if if a chick is causing a random generator to behave differently. What is the human brain doing with its consciousness? I mean, when you when you start extrapolating uh, the meanings and and we're just scratching the surface of all that you have in your book. I mean, your book is loaded with, um, you know, precognition. And and uh, one of the stories that I love is a, uh, a little girl who got a heart transplant and um, started having nightmares. I mean, you can't explain this stuff um, with the current paradigm. I mean, you anybody that has a reasonable scientific mind has to look at this and go, what's going on here? Um, and so uh, she gets the heart transplant. She starts having vivid nightmares of being murdered. Um, her mom doesn't know what to do, takes her to a psychiatrist. And this little girl is, is reporting, you know, clothing that was worn by the murderer, you know, all these facts and statistics and the, and the psychologist, the psychiatrist, thank goodness, had the presence of mind to say, wait a minute, this is really unusual and went to the police and gave the police all this information and they ended up catching the killer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's extraordinary. 
And that wasn't a brain transplant. That was a heart transplant. It's wild. Yeah, these things, these, they don't fit the conventional model. That it's just the, the reason that we know things are, are because of chemical and electrical activity stuck inside our skull, in our brain. And certainly there is no consciousness outside the brain and there's no way that our consciousness could affect the physical world around us. Those are the kinds of assumptions of the mainstream. And you describe these, these organ transplant uh, stories. There's a book called The Heart's Code by Dr. Paul Pearsall, where he goes through some of the examples that I cite in my book. And you also reference the power of intention, which we've seen in some cases in animals. And I wish there were more studies on this, but one of the big problems is the lack of funding to be able to, to do this. So there are studies that have accumulated over the decades, but it's not nearly as much as you see for things that get NIH grants, for example, or more traditional areas of science. Um, one of the, the more compelling areas I found in, with regard to intention is not just in the animal space, which there is some evidence for that, but also with regard to human intention impacting random number generators. And so this work was done at Princeton, for example, and other places too. There was a lab run by the former Dean of Engineering, Dr. Robert John, and it, it shut down in 2007. It was going for nearly 30 years. Interestingly, I was an undergrad at Princeton while this was there, and I didn't even know it existed. It was, it was pretty controversial that they were even running studies like this, but they used random number generators. These are machines that spit out zeros and ones in a random fashion. And the experimenters asked people to try to influence the machine using their intention, meaning using their consciousness. They would say, I want you to try to make the machine produce more ones than zeros. And they found that people were able to do that. So again, it wasn't like there were 99% ones and zero and 1% zeros. It wasn't that drastic. It was much closer to 50%, but it was a deviation beyond what chance would predict. So there, there seems to be something about the human intention that affects the physical world. And we also see this on a collective scale. There's something known as the Global Consciousness Project, which is an offshoot of the lab at Princeton, where these machines are set up all over the world. And most people don't even know about them. They're generating zeros and ones in a random fashion all day long. So we we have a lot of data on what these machines are doing typically. And what the experimenters have looked at is whether the machines behave differently during events that cause uh, a common emotional reaction for many people around the world. So 9-11, Princess Diana's death, things like that. And the experimenters find that there is a statistically significant deviation when people seem to be emotionally charged in a similar direction. So all of this suggests that not only is consciousness beyond the brain, but it's actually having an impact on the physical world in ways that we don't even understand. I love that. Um, I, and I want to bring up uh, two things at this point. Uh, one of them is, is, and when you get into quantum physics and Einstein's got this great quote. Uh, oh, here it is. It's all along this People line. like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between the past, the present and the future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. I love that. And wrapping your brain around that, I mean, it's hard enough to wrap your brain around a lot of the, qu the quantum physics uh, concepts. Um, but the idea of past, present, and future being just an illusion is really wild. Um, on that note, I also want to mention there's a fantastic metaphor because one of the things that helped me understand the non-locality of consciousness is the idea that we're like a television set. Um, and we're just picking up a, a, a signal or, or a radio uh, that's picking up a signal. So the signal's out there uh, and our brain is just the hardware uh, to pick it up and trying to understand consciousness by dissecting the hardware um, as another quote that you have in your book. Um, it's like trying to understand music by ripping apart, a, you know, a CD. You're, you're not going to, you know, you'll, you'll get the hardware, but you're, you're going to have no concept of the software. Um, yes. Another great simile that you have in your book is to think of it as a river. Um, and we are like uh, whirlpools and those whirlpools come in and out of existence. They exist for a time and then they move on, but they don't disappear. They don't become nothing. They just move into other things. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to our earlier discussion about like the correlation between the brain and consciousness, because what you're describing is really fundamental to that. Yes, we know the brain is related to the way that we experience the world, but what we've been talking about here and what I talk about in my books is the idea that the brain is not producing consciousness, that there isn't a biological basis for it. 
but that doesn't mean the brain's not involved. So then the question people often ask is, and what's the, how does the, what's the relationship between brain and consciousness? And as you said, we could use an analogy to say that the brain is like an antenna that is receiving, transmitting, and processing something that is beyond itself. So if you think about a television set, for example, you're watching TV and then you take a hammer, a hammer and smash the antenna on the TV. And then all of a sudden the TV show that you're watching appears scratchy on the screen. You're not getting a clear picture. And it's not because the signal has been damaged that the TV was picking up. It's that the apparatus that was responsible for processing the signal, the antenna, has been damaged. So the, the signal is sort of like consciousness and our body and our brain is almost like the antenna. Um, another way to think about it is that the brain is like a filtering mechanism. So the brain is is getting in the way of consciousness, almost like a blindfold. So when someone has a near-death experience, for example, when there's little or no brain functioning and they report that things, their consciousness was um, enriched and things were realer than real, there's this mismatch that, of, wait, you don't have a brain that's functional or if it is, it's barely functioning. And then you have a cognition or a consciousness that's stronger. Maybe the brain is getting in the way. And this goes to the analogy that you're talking about from Dr. Bernardo Castrup. He says that all of reality could be likened to this stream of water, like an infinite stream. Um, each of us is a whirlpool within the stream. So this is a very profound metaphysical statement that he's making, that it's not that the world is physical fundamentally and that there was a big bang and then there was 13.8 billion years of collisions of pieces of matter after the Big Bang, which led to the evolution of a human being, which developed a brain, and then consciousness came at the end. What he's arguing, and many others have argued as well, is no, consciousness is the basis of reality, like the stream of water. And the reason that we are individuals is because we are um, we had the sense of being an individual as a whirlpool. We're not actually an individual. So the whirlpool is a localization of consciousness. And when that whirlpool delocalizes, it almost dissolves. The water doesn't leave the stream. It just transitions into a new form. So the analogy is that when our body dies, our consciousness doesn't actually die. It just transitions into a new state. And this is why the book's called An End to Upside Down Thinking. It's literally a reversal of the current paradigm, which many call scientific materialism, that everything can be reduced to physical stuff called matter. If you just look at a in a microscope, you're just going to find matter. And then it's from matter that the, everything in the world emerges, including our consciousness. And what I'm really summarizing is other people's arguments that it's the reverse, that consciousness is fundamental. And what we call the material world is really just a modulation or a variation of that primordial consciousness. And I know I've only scratched the surface of your work because you've got a bunch of books that I have not read yet, but um, the implications to that on really just every aspect of life is is rather huge. Yes, it's unending the implications. Because we're operating in a very materialistic world right now when people believe that they're the center of the universe um, and that's all there is, um, you know, behavior does a certain thing. Um, but if you have a different worldview, then boy, does that impact a heck of a lot of behavior and, uh, you know, how you show up in the world. Right. It changes priorities. And my second book, It Ends Upside Down Living, Living goes through a lot of this of like, how, how would one then orient one's life with this new perspective? Because it is kind of the, the, the follow-on question that comes up after people accept the scientific aspect of it. Then there is a real personal question of, wait a second, I have a different paradigm about the nature of reality? Am I living my life in accordance with that? And this has been my journey to try to like recalibrate everything. And it changes everything. I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I have a concrete answer. I have inferences that I think can be well supported, but I am constantly trying to recalibrate what should I be prioritizing in my life? How should I be spending my time? What should I be thinking about? And what is the answer for Mark? I'm, I'm trying to summarize this as concisely as possible. I think that we exist to embody something that's beyond our individual selves. And the way in which we do that is by perfecting ourselves to the best of our ability to becoming to become the best vessel for this larger consciousness. Almost like if we exist within a cosmic puzzle, each of us is a piece that is unique and distinct and has strengths and weaknesses but it's our task to embody that in the best way possible to be the best vessel. I love it. 
I love it. I love it. I, I, and I feel completely in alignment with that. And I feel like, you know, my life is that same path. And it's like, I, I look at all the things that I turned down and said no to. And when you look back and go, oh, that's why I didn't want to do that. You know, yeah, it was a lot of money. Yeah, it was a lot of this. Yeah, it was a lot of fame. Yeah. And it's just like, it's so much better to live in alignment with what that heart is dictating in the bigger picture. I want to touch on a couple of other things because um, for those people that, I mean, you, your book was like brain candy to me. It was just like one explosion after another, after another. And again, a lot of the stuff I, I, I knew because I was already in love with it. But um, you, you talk about people that had near-death experiences and I'm you know familiar with Arnita Marjani's story and it's epic and mind-blowing and, and incredibly inspirational. Um, but you talked about people that were blind and then had near-death experiences and they can see I mean, what's that all about? Um, people that were deaf and they have near-death experiences and, you know, their brains are completely shut down and they're able to hear um, people that were, you know, flatlined, thought to be dead um, and ended up getting resuscitated. Um, and then later on giving instructions to the nurse, you know, where their dentures were put in the operating room. Um, I, I just crazy stories. And, and again, you've just done such a great job of, of cataloging these and also tracking the scientific significance of each of these things, you know, the statistical probabilities of these things being random versus, you know, cause you can, it's those outliers, you know, you can, you can sort of brush off a few of them as, oh, this is fraud and, oh, somebody made this up and this, that, and the other thing. But when you have this quantity of information, um, that is put forth. I mean, you talk about twins and, and how, you know, one of them knows when the other one's about to have a seizure. Um, you know, one of them's downstairs and just says, oh, I need to check on my twin sister who's taking a bath upstairs um, and find out that she's having a seizure and about to drown. Um, you know, somebody who has a dream and, you know, sees the exact time as to, you know, when there's going to be a storm outside and the chandelier is going to crash into the crib and she has a precognition, absolutely clear dream of this before it happens. And then you go into Larry Dossie's work as well. And, you know, he's an amazing pioneer in this area. And, you know, his introduction to this uh, was in his first year of medical school. He has a completely vivid, clear dream of a child um, that he knew, didn't know the child well, but it was the child was brought in for an EEG um, and was going to have the device put on his head. And he just put up this giant fight and 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 it was this traumatic thing. And this nurse who was totally skilled at this just was not able to perform it. And he didn't think anything of it. Um, you know, he, it was traumatic and, and very vivid to him. And he almost told his wife about it. But then when he got to work that day, you know, this scene played out. And, and he was just so perplexed. It was like that. How that's not possible that I could have known this ahead of time. And he even interviewed the father and said, it, "Did anybody know about this? Is there any way that this got into my consciousness without me knowing about it? That I had this crazy dream?" And he said, "No, absolutely not. There was no way you could have known that." Um, and then he went and had additional ones. So um, you know, you start piling on these stories, and um, to somebody like me who just there's part of us, I think, that recognizes this as being truth. It's like we know this somewhere in our consciousness. So people like me who have been on this trail for decades, um, you know, this is just such a welcome relief. It's like, thank goodness, you know, you know, I've been looking through the telescope and seeing <laughs> Earth is going around the sun for a long time. And I think a lot of, you know, your fans are going to, you know, I've already told tons of people about your your um, your book. And, you know, these are cool people that are like, oh yeah, tell me more, tell me more. Um, so I'm really, really excited to get the word out and, um, help you reach your audience because they're out there. Um, and they're, they're, they're aching for this material because, um, it really does, um, help one more comfortably shift the paradigm from, you know, where these isolated things that, um, you know, are coming from this little tiny bit of meat in here, and at the end of your life, it's gone. And what's the point? What I found also is that most people, even people who are more on the materialistic side, have had experiences they can't explain. It just might be one off and they they are able to dismiss it because they haven't seen all the evidence in one place. And even, I believe it was Dean Radin who did this from the Institute of Noetic Sciences, um, has cataloged mainstream academics and they many of them say, or if not most of them say, they've had some kind of a paranormal experience they can't explain, whether it's a precognitive dream 
or they felt like they communicated with the deceased loved one. Something happened. But there's, at least in my own intellectual process, I need to have a lot of the evidence there in one place to be able to have the shift. And my process has been a gradual one. Whereas let's say someone has a near-death experience and they experience these other realms or something, whatever it is, they come back, they are forever changed and it's overnight. So that's one way to have a shift. And that's probably the most powerful way. Although I wouldn't recommend a near-death experience because sometimes you might not make it back if you, you aren't able to be resuscitated. My process has been more, been more gradual and it takes repeated evidence I found. And my, my process was like two steps forward, one step back, because I would encounter something that would totally blow my mind. And my rational mind would say, wow, this was a well-done study and it was replicated and, and it was actually accepted by a journal, for example. And then I would go about my life and almost forget it because I would go back to what I can sense in my ordinary experience. And that does not align with some of the studies that I found. So then I would revert back to just normalcy. And then I would read more and eventually it leads one forward. But it can take time to actually have a paradigm shift if it's just through the intellectual lens. I can totally relate to that. Um, I, I've had that experience multiple times in my life where it's just like pure enlightenment. Um, you feel that complete connection to everything that exists and it's, it's energizing and it's calming and it's just, it's an extraordinary state. Um, the first time I experienced it was doing breath work. Cause I think that's, uh, a conduit in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's happened spontaneously. I had it happen in a yoga class, actually twice, uh, two different teachers, but it does seem that the person who's guiding the yoga class, their energy seems to be uh, uh, impactful um, because in both cases, the teacher was somebody who was um, quite uh, appreciated for their ability to hold that kind of space. Um, but it, it just hit me all of a sudden and there's just this incredible clarity and this immense gratitude, this, um, it's just this heightened awareness. Uh, uh, and I've also found that I can drift back to ordinary life and get caught up in silly little things. Um, and the challenge is to hold that immense energized just full of awe and gratitude state. Uh, you must be a Zach Bush fan, I'm guessing. Yeah, I've come across his work. Uh, he has a wonderful eight minutes uh, thing that went uh, viral and uh, he brought back three people in the ER. He's an amazing oncologist. Mm -hmm. And uh, they all said the same thing, which was, and these were people from completely different lives. Uh, you know, they've had happy lives. They might one had a relatively isolated life, but they all said the same thing, which is, why did you bring me back? <laughs> <laughs> because they were just, they had experienced so much uh, love and acceptance. And um, there's just something so rich about this area of study, this area of interest. Um, when you get into the foundation of us all being connected um, in this energy matrix. Uh, you know, there's just, um, something amazing there. Uh, anyway, I do want to mention a few of the other things that, uh, you had in your book because, uh, you know, you had twins, you had horses that were separated and that one, one horse would get fed and the other would be like, you know, annoyed that something, you know, wasn't being fed to him, even though he couldn't see or hear or, or experience that the other horse was being fed or doted over. Um, you have Oscar the cat, which I love that story. Um, again, this is just so statistically improbable that this could possibly happen. But at a nursing home, um, this cat would seem to know when somebody was going to pass. Um, and uh, one time the staff thought the cat got it wrong because somebody was turning blue and they thought, well, Oscar's not around. So Oscar must have blown this one. And the person ended up pulling through and not dying for another 10 hours at which point Oscar the cat shows up at you know the bedside and he did it within about a two hour window. So the nursing staff was able to contact the family and because it was just so reliable, I think it happened, what, 27 times something? That sounds right. Yeah. Enough where it was in the a prominent medical journal. It was in the New England Journal of Medicine yeah. in 07. I mean, that's yeah. incredible. Um, so uh, again, you get all these outliers that just keep mounting and mounting and mounting. And like you said, even if, you know, even the really academic, and I've tested the water a few times with people that were, you know, really accomplished MDs, surgeons, and, you know, just floated a little something out there like, uh, 
you know, telepathy or precognition. And, and it's really surprising um, how many people can relate to this stuff at, at some level. What in the book are your three favorite studies? If you were sitting in a room with somebody for five minutes and you wanted to say, hey, this stuff is real, uh, which would be the three studies that most come to mind or three documented experiences? I would start with the U.S. government's psychic spying program, which is known as remote viewing, the ability to perceive something with the mind that is far away in space and or time. So this points to the idea that not only is consciousness fundamental, but it actually exists beyond space and time. And that makes sense in the context of these anomalies. So why do I start there? Because there are declassified documents about this program, which I include in the book. And they say very explicitly, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. That is a quote from declassified document. So that would be one. Second would be veridical experiences in a near-death state. So veridical means that what the person claims to have perceived was verified as accurate upon being resuscitated. So this could be where the person says, and again, this is like cardiac arrest, clinical death. The person is not in good shape at all. And then they come back and they're resuscitated and they say, well, I was hovering over my body. I saw the way that you were operating on me. I heard this. I heard this conversation in another room. So they perceived things. Not just the fact that they perceived them is significant, but they perceived it from a vantage point outside their body. And they came back and the doctor or the family member will say, yes, that happened. The significance there is that the the memory can be time stamped. We know what was happening to the person's body when that memory occurred. And we know that what was happening to the body should not have been able to produce that kind of a complex cognition that is by definition non-hallucinatory because if it's a verified memory, it's not a hallucination. And that's what many skeptics would say. Well, it's just a hallucination that the brain created. I'll give one other example of a verified memory, which comes up. Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia wrote a paper about this in 2010 where during the near-death state, the person will encounter deceased relatives, they will encounter a being of light, but then sometimes just a, like some kind of a, a human being that they thought was living. And then they come back, so they encounter the consciousness of this person and they're resuscitated and they say, well, I, I think this person's dead. I encountered he or she in this, uh, in this near-death state. And then they'll be like, no, that person didn't die. That didn't happen. They find out, wait, actually the person did die. So it's a verified piece of knowledge that they couldn't have known about. So people, they encounter people that were not known to have died at the time. Verified memory. Okay, the third I would point to is a study done by Dr. Edsel Cardenia. It was published in American Psychologist, which is the official peer-reviewed academic journal of the American Psychological Association. And Dr. Cardenia aggregated the statistical evidence for mind matter interactions, precognition, which is knowing or sensing the future before it happens, telepathic abilities, remote viewing. So all these various areas, he compiled the studies and they allowed it to go through, which means that they looked at the statistical evidence that he was acknowledging and said that it was good enough to pass their standards for a mainstream academic journal. And the last thing I'll say here on this line of statistics is a quotation from Dr. Jessica Utz, who was a st statistics professor at UC Davis, the 2016 president of the American Statistical Association, who also looked at this data. And she said, using the standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well-established. This was back in 1995 that she said that. Wonderful. Yeah, I just want to add a couple of things uh, to what you said. And, and I love that you brought up those examples, the veridical uh, past lives. Uh, uh, and it was also really interesting in your book to note that there seems to be a window of time that children are most lucid about remembering. I mean, they have to be old enough that they can verbalize or communicate. So that's, I don't know, between two and three, I'm guessing. Um, and then at, at, as they get up to like five, they start to, to lose it generally. Um, there may be some exceptions to that, but there's a couple of examples in your book. Well, there's several, um, one of uh, a child that just thought airplanes were the coolest thing ever. And, you know, his dad took him to a world war II museum and he just thought these world war II airplanes were amazing. And then it turned out that, uh, you know, he, 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 he kept, he kept crashing the airplane and going, little man inside can't get out, little man inside can't get out. 
And he ended up remembering um, literally who he was and where he had crashed. And, and the, I believe the name of another person uh, that he was associated with at that time. And so that would be an example of a veretical one where there's just no way this kid could have known this stuff. Um, it, 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 that just was not made up. Um, another one that you mentioned in your book is one where uh, somebody was murdered and came back uh, as another person in the family and had birthmarks from the bullet wound uh, that had gone in one side and out the other. But this this new person had just this huge hatred for that family member and wanted to murder them. And if had not been held back, would have potentially killed that person. Um, that gets pretty weird <laughs> and, and uh, it's hard to verify any other way. Um, and then there was another one uh, where uh, a child who lived somewhere in America uh, was just fascinated with Hollywood and Hollywood books. And, uh, and, and when he was going through one of the books that one of his parents had gotten him because he just thought this was the coolest thing ever, um, he was able to point to somebody and says, I, I know this man, this is so-and-so. And, and then he said, this is me. I, I'm in this role, this movie with him. He was an extra. So he wasn't famous, but he was a, a working extra and ended up living this beautiful life in the Hollywood Hills and, and poo-pooed the environment that he was in. He's like, I don't live in a place like this. I live in something much grander. Um, so those are pretty hard to explain uh, by anything other than the idea that we're part of this stream of consciousness that just localizes in, in these various tissues that we acquire at different times along the way. And there are actually over 2,500 cases of young children that have these memories that can't be explained through ordinary means. They were, they've been studied at the University of Virginia and now other places starting in the 1960s. Dr. Ian Stevenson, who was a prominent psychiatrist, started to realize what's going on with these little kids who are talking about very specific memories. And it's not like every, because I hear this criticism uh, where, well, yeah, everyone believes that they were Cleopatra or some famous person. That's not what these cases are talking about. These are obscure people. Like you mentioned, a Hollywood extra that the kid claimed to be or a World War II fighter pilot where he was the only person in that plane that crashed and then knew the other pilot. Um not every case is as strong in terms of the direct evidence that can be verified, but the strongest ones are where they can find a historical record or a medical record that validates what the child is saying and how else would the child know this to be true. And some of these other cases where the, the physical body is seems to be impacted, there are birthmarks or physical defects in the current child's body that align with the death in the alleged previous life. Those are very hard to explain as well. And, and like you said, the, the children actually have aversions and things that they like based on this previous life, which suggests that our current personality, if we extrapolate this beyond the individual cases, it might be the case that we've all had past lives that we don't remember. And the things that we, are, we gravitate toward and the things that we are, are, are afraid of might be impacted by something beyond our physical biology and by, uh, beyond our environment. There is this third factor that they talk about at the University of Virginia that might be influencing our biology. And if that's true, then, I mean, biology has to be turned upside down. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Well, any parent of multiple kids will say that, you know, they come in as totally different people. Um, it's not like the environment completely shapes uh, who and what they are, what they are, and um, parents seem to have a, a clear idea of that. Um, you had mentioned the remote viewing, and I just wanted to mention a couple of things that uh, uh, Carter actually uh, commented on how remote viewers were used to locate. Because um, I mean, they love to use satellites when th that's available, because it's you know there's hardcore, easy to read stuff. Um, but they have instances where the satellites are not sufficient. So there was a Russian bomber that went down in um, uh, Africa. That's one thing that you cited. And a remote viewer was able to identify where it was. And when they looked in that specific area, yes, they were able to find it. Um, they were able to uh, assess the health condition of hostages in Iran um, using remote viewing. And then um, the Carter mentioned one specifically that was another downed airplane. Is that correct? Yeah, this was the one in, in an African jungle where you're, okay. he is, he validated that they used remote viewers because the radar systems weren't able to find it. And apparently there were, there was valuable information on this crashed bomber. So it was of national security significance and they used remote viewers to identify the location. I mean, that's, 
cases like that to me are the most compelling because in some of the studies, like the ones that were done at Princeton, these were also remarkable. The experimenters would send a person to some location and they would ask the remote viewer, tell me where this person is, draw it out. And they would ask them to do this not only in the present, but the past and the future. Like, where is this person going to be in the future? Where were they in the past? In those cases, the experimenter knew the answer. So it's not quite as compelling. It's still amazing. This lost bomber, no one knew where it was. So it's not like the US government knew where this thing was and they were testing the remote viewers. They needed to find this. And the former president of the United States confirmed that this thing, that they didn't know where it was. They used psychics to find it. And then in another instance, there was a kidnapped uh, general in Italy and uh, remote viewers were used to locate that person. Yeah, there. this has been used in law enforcement yeah. where sometimes psychics are brought in. And I have a podcast series called Where Is My Mind? Um, it's an eight episode series. And I interviewed many of the people that I wrote about, including uh, a psychic who was brought in by law enforcement to find, like to help solve crimes. So like this is practically used sometimes. Yeah. Mark, where do you want people to go to find out more about you? Um, you mentioned your podcast. Uh, how do people find it? What platforms is it on? Um, yeah, just uh, tell us where you want people to go. The ones that have been, you know, their interest has been peaked. They want to know more. Um, you know, give them the give them the recipe book as to where to go next. My website is a good place to start. It's markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. I have five books out, as you mentioned before, and they're all available in hard copy, Kindle, and Audible, depending on what you prefer. So you can get those on Amazon. Um, my podcast series, Where Is My Mind, is available on all the major players. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. It's an eight-episode series that goes through many of the things that I talk about in my books and what we talked about today, but it features my interviews with many of the scientists and experiencers. So if you prefer to hear their voices rather than just the quotations, the podcast would be a good place to start. I love that you read your book. Um, whenever I listen to an audiobook, um, I love it when the author reads it because it just feels like it's that much more alive. I'm getting that much more rich, riches, that much more insight. I'm actually studying voice right now, and I think there's something really magical about voice. And and um, I think there's a lot of information that we don't currently understand that's communicated with the voice. Um, and I think that's going to be a really interesting area of upcoming research as well. Um, I am over the moon excited uh, that we've done this interview. Um, I It's an area that I'm so fascinated in. Um, I feel like I could talk to you for a month. I, I'm going through your book now for the second time, and I'm looking forward to your other books. What can I say? But thank you so much. <laughs> and I want to say to everybody out there, if you love this interview, please go to Mark's website, get his books. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to read the book and for having me on. And I hope that your audience enjoys the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Next Level Healing. Please like, subscribe, and let us know how this helped you. How can it be even more life-changing? We love hearing from you. And if you're eager to upgrade your life, click the button here or go to consultterra.com and get your free customized GPS map. Get the coordinates for where you are now and where you want to go. Clients consistently report it's faster and easier than they thought possible. Remember, you were meant for more, and it is available to you. See you right here next week for our next episode. Yeah.